Hello and welcome to Safari Conversations, the Singita podcast. Even though we've been around for 30 years, we're relatively new to podcasting. But we are storytellers by nature and we've got so much to share with you. Alongside our conservation partners, we've been busy exploring and protecting Africa's wilderness. So join us as we unpack inspiring, fun, and sometimes crazy stories where you'll meet our incredible people and learn all about the special places in Africa that we call home. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. My name is Ross Cooper and I'm the resident photographer for Singida Game Reserve. And today's guest is ecologist Sarah Clegg, who works for the Malangwe Trust located in Zimbabwe. Sarah was the first ecologist to have been employed with the Malangwe Trust and was responsible for putting in place many of the biological monitoring systems that are still in use today. Her focus is predominantly the Malalangwe's black and white rhino population. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing a little bit more of the success stories around the conservation in the Malalangwe Trust in Zimbabwe. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Ross, for having me. Sarah, the first ecologist of the Malalangwe Trust, that is a great achievement. How did you find yourself in Zimbabwe working for the Malalangwe Trust? So, Ross, um, Malalangwe isn't only about wildlife and conservation. It's also about developing capacity. So amongst a number of um, projects that Malalangwe runs to develop that capacity are postgraduate research sponsorships. And I was one of the fortunate students who was given um, the opportunity to do my master's project here on Malalangwe. I think being here since 996 has given us a fair time to see how things have changed and how they developed over time, and perhaps in more so, you've seen how conservation has changed in the time that you've been here in those years. Yeah, Ross, you know, when a, when a, when a wildlife area starts out, there, is the, there are sort of three stages. There's the initial restocking phase, because Malalangwe used to be a, a, a cattle ranch, and so we needed to bring in quite a few different species. And during that initial stage, it's all about which stock to bring in, genetics, that, that are important or that are appropriate for the area. And it's about working out how many animals you need to bring in out of what species. So one of our main objectives was to restore the historic biodiversity. And that's why, for example, the rhinos were brought back. And I'd imagine over a period of time, um, even when it was a cattle ranch, there still were species that occurred here that thrived amongst cattle ranches that moved through the area. And I'm talking the smaller species. Yeah, there was actually almost a full range of species. There were even um, a remnant group of sable and Liechtenstein's hardebeest. And so those are the species that we just nurtured back and that we um, augmented with bringing in stock from other areas. But most of the other species were here. Even the predators were here, but we, their numbers were very low. So we brought those in. And then um, after that phase, we see the growth phase. This is a phase when populations begin to grow because they're now protected. But the challenges during this phase are ensuring that you are providing them with quality forage, especially for your herbivores. So that involves making sure that you are burning sufficiently or you know, appropriately, not too much, not too little in the right areas, to ensure that there's going to be a green flush and good quality forage coming through. It also involves making sure that your permanent water is in the right place and that you don't have too much of it. Because where you have too much permanent water, you can actually 
drive out some of the species that only survive in low-density areas, require tall grass, and can't really tolerate predation. So at Malalangwe, our main focus is less on volume of animals, less on numbers, but more on biodiversity, and trying to get that fine balance of nature back in place, which is really difficult nowadays because once you start to compress wildlife into a given space, whether through a fence or whether through our human development, we're actually compressing these animals into restricted space. They can't move beyond those boundaries. And as soon as we start doing that, we need to manage, which is you know, the situation across Africa, really. Absolutely. I mean, I think with sort of human population expanding and enclosing these reserves that are still wilderness aspects, I think it comes down to wildlife management or management of the land that is so important and so vital to the success of the species. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we can't do without it. We'd love not to manage. So we manage as little as we can and we try to be as sensitive as we can, just where necessary to try and stand in for some of the processes that might not be able to take place, like immigration and immigration. And this is where projects like translocations become important. Touching on that, I think there's a big part where we talk about conservation on a broader aspect. I mean, relocation is one of the projects that Malangwe Trust is involved with. But perhaps if I could ask you to bring us a little bit into your field, in particular the rhinos and the success story behind them here, and maybe touching on that relocation and how important it is for this area. Yeah, so Ross, we've just, we've chatted about the initial stage of the restocking and then the exponential growth in the species populations. And then you get to a point which Malalangui's really reached now for most species where we have now the maturation phase where a lot of our species have reached carrying capacity and it calls for a different type of management. So with rhino, for example, we actually need to start restocking other parts of Southern Africa or Africa. Um, because our populations are, have now, you know, reached that level where their growth is starting to decline. And this is not a bad thing. This is a natural process. When animals reach a certain level, their calving intervals will start to, to increase, which means they're having less, less calves because there's a bit of pressure on their bodies and they're not getting sufficient food to produce a calf as, as often as, um, say, maximum. But for species like rhinos, which we want to breed at maximum, we actually need to keep them in such a healthy position that they are producing as many calves as possible and we can start up new populations. So as much as translocations are traumatic events, as far as I'm concerned, because you're moving animals into completely foreign environments that they aren't used to, you're moving them away from the other other individuals that they've become accustomed to and maybe set up networks with, it's still necessary um, if we want these populations to keep growing. And I think maybe if you can just touch on not necessary numbers, as we know that is a concealed number in terms of what we have, but maybe if you can give us a, a growth aspect as to particularly rhino, what, what we're at from you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Mm, so rhino actually are a species that do incredibly well if left alone, and you know, especially if they're in an environment where the resources are good for them. And Malalangui has proved to be one of the best areas for both black and white rhino. We've seen our black rhino population um, increase sixfold since 1998 when we introduced um, a a group of them, and our white rhino have increased ninefold. So these are, you know, great uh, rewarding numbers to see. And for me as an ecologist, it's been an absolute joy to be part of something that's worked so well. And I just think I've been very fortunate to be in a place where we've been able to protect our rhino 
and where the resources, the natural resources, have been almost perfect for the species. Sarah, those are incredible numbers, and I think that's a success story for any reserve to have at a point where you can start relocating rhino to other areas. And I think even more of a success to any visitor that comes to visit Singida Pomishana. They have a more likely chance of seeing sightings of black or white rhino in this reserve, which does make the property even more special. Singida Pomishana has actually dedicated a conservation room, which recently opened to our guest, which adds great value to a guest stay. And perhaps just wanted to ask from your point of view in terms of what's been placed in that conservation room, would that now allow for a deeper understanding to conservation that takes place in these reserves? Yes, Ross. Well, that, that's what we set this conservation room up for. We wanted the guests to see a little bit of what's below the surface. So when a guest goes out, they'll see this beautiful landscape and they'll see the animals in it, but they won't necessarily understand the intricacies of the ecosystem and what's required for a healthy ecosystem for each species to be in balance and how important every aspect of that ecosystem is from the water to the geology to the soils, the plants, the herbivores, and then the predators on top of that. Every single aspect of the ecosystem needs to be healthy for what the outcome that they see here. And to keep it in balance is not an easy thing. And if one aspect of that intricate network is thrown out of kilter, it has cascading effects on all the others. And so we just wanted our guests to understand it's a lot more complex than what you see on the surface. And for many of our guests, that's an exciting thing to start seeing. It uh, adds color to the palette, really. Absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of folks that do visit the reserves are always after the charismatic, large, mm. big animals. And to see the finer details to how the conservation becomes a balance to the ecosystem around it, I think, is, is quite important. Sarah, I wanted to chat to you about some of the incredible projects that the Conservation Room highlights. For our listeners, let me put it in perspective. The Manalangwe Wildlife Reserve comprises of about 115,000 acres of protected wilderness. And this rugged beauty is thriving with wildlife. The work here is really a shining example of long-term conservation vision. And I would like you to take us through one of your biodiversity projects and what's involved in protecting and regenerating this massive wilderness area. Yeah, Ross, I think that we've been very fortunate here at Malalangui. We've had very consistent, reliable donor funding. And because of this, we've been able to do a lot of things that other wildlife areas have struggled with. Firstly, we've because we've had good funding, we've been able to retain staff. So a lot of the visions and the projects that were initiated, say, 25, 30 years ago, are still in place. And when you see long-term projects like this, you can see a final outcome coming to fruition which is really, really rewarding. Um, we've also been able to train our scouts properly, remunerate them properly, and equip them properly. And this has done a lot for helping us with the anti-poaching because research has shown that a huge proportion of poaching actually involves in-house corruption. So this is either scouts taking part or staff taking part in the, in the poaching or turning a blind eye to it. So what we found is that by looking after our staff and, and not just, you know, remunerating them properly, but ensuring that they know we care about them as people, that we care about their families, they, they really feel cherished here. And when you set up a system like this, you, you develop loyalty from your staff. And I think it's had a lot to do with the fact that we've had very low poaching. So with all the scouts, I completely agree. I mean, having boots on the ground is incredibly vital. I think one of the aspects that always comes to mind is 
how technology is advancing and changing the way we view things and do things. And although it's been really helpful in certain aspects, having those boots on the ground to be able to view in real life or real terms activity that's taking place in the bush that we wouldn't be able to keep track of. I think that's where the the vital component also comes into play with those scouts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's wonderful technology that's being developed now, um, but nothing can really replace boots on the ground and, um, you know, the guys looking at how healthy the animals are and what's going on and, you know, preempting a situation where a rhino is poached. So, for example, a lot of the new technology focuses on on tracking, but the disadvantage with this is that once your animal has been poached and you know it's been poached, there's nothing you can do about it. So the work needs to be done before the animal's been poached. I don't know if I explained that properly, but basically if you're tracking a rhino and you find that it stopped moving because it's dead, your only hope is to get there quickly enough to to catch the poachers, but that means you've already lost your, your rhino. So boots on the ground pick up spore of people that have come in before they um, actually perpetrate a poaching event. And I think having the boots on the ground also allows, and maybe this interleads into my next question and what you've been doing in the last couple of weeks really leading up to it, is the ear notching process and having those scouts on the ground to be able to view a rhino cows that have young calves that are now slowly but surely going to become independent and being able to actually identify these species individually. Now, this sort of connects with our conservation room because they have listed what we term as ear notching. And for listeners out there, you'd have a better explanation to this than me, but this would entail sort of notching out a certain section of an ear to be able to identify the rhino with a quicker view. Having those boots on the ground, it allows you to have the access to the information of which rhinos have been identified and which new calves are now in the process of, of forming the bulk of the population. Yes. Um, so, Ross, at Malalangui, every single rhino is individually identified, which means that if you saw that animal and you managed to have a clear sighting of its ears, I could tell you exactly who it was, and I could give you its history, basically back to possibly even its great-grandmother. Um, this information is invaluable for how we manage these animals when it comes to time for selecting which individuals we're going to select for a translocation, for example. But um, I just wanted to tell you a little bit of a history about ear notching. Ear notching borrows the idea from cattle ranching. This is the way that cattle ranchers used to, and, and many still do, identify their, their stock and pigs as well. It involves cutting a, a small piece of tissue out of the outer edge of the ear, and the pattern that's produced by different positions of these notches, it's unique for each animal. It's a pattern system that is pretty permanent, so we don't need to go back and immobilize the animal like we would if we had put a tracking device into its horn. We would need to replace that battery if we wanted to carry on tracking it. It's reliable in that anybody can give me information on the rhino they saw. It's not just somebody who's got a VHF antenna or access to the satellite information. Any observer can draw a picture of what they saw, and it's useful to me. These ear notches do change over time because animals tear their ears, and this is a natural process even if you didn't notch them. These rhino, you know, they tear their ears, particularly bulls. In excess of 20% of our rhino have torn their ears. So ear tearing is not an unusual thing. Having said that, I really have to say that I don't like ear notching because we have to immobilize the animal. It's an operation you don't want to have to do on a wild animal. But because poaching and... Um, 
pressure on land has pushed us to the situation where we need to closely manage these endangered species. We do need to know what's going on with their populations so that we can manage them the best way we can. We can intervene if things aren't going right, and we can move animals to other areas when we have it, when we find we're actually getting to capacity. So uh, the way that I see it, it's a bit like immunizing your child. It's a very traumatic experience for your child to go for its injection, but at the end of the day, it's the better of two evils. And so I, I see that as far as ear notching goes with our rhinos. I think the research is incredibly important. And if I look back to some of our other regions where we do the uh, leopard panthera project. Mm. A lot of those leopards have natural markings, spot patterns around their, their cheek pouches or even certain rosettes or even a necklace around that leopard that can identify it. So from a rhino perspective, given that the species I would describe as being a sensitive species at the moment mm. due to their numbers throughout Africa, it's obviously vital to have that research, but also to be able to identify for the purpose of relocation, as you've said. I definitely think that it is something that's interesting and intriguing. And when I went to the conservation room recently, I noticed that the notch markings, there's certain numbers that have sort of been prescribed to a particular rhino. So in terms of a, a rhino identification, it's listed as a number. Is that correct? Yeah, you see, the numbering system helps me to to know which patterns are still available. But at the end of the day, it's a pattern because it tears and it changes. And the most important thing is that we can read that pattern and that the pattern doesn't require too many cuts. So if I used all the options on the, the system that we use, there would be too many notches. So I never use the whole all the numbers. I select the numbers that will cause the least um, damage, if you want to say, to the animal's ear, and that's the easiest to read. Yeah, I just wanted to tell you when we start doing this and why. Um, what, what we do is we make sure that we've notched um, a rhino calf before it leaves its mother. Because once a calf leaves its mother, we don't have the history of who it belonged to, and so we won't be able to track its maternal lineage. And what we find is that at about 30 months, give or take, I mean, it can be as low as even 21 months, a rhino calf will leave its mother. And it's actually driven away by the mother just before she has her new calf. This is why we must make sure that they've been identified before she has her new calf. And it's quite interesting because the calf will be driven away and then after a couple of months it's allowed back again with mother. And then it sort of spends time with mom, still learning the ropes and getting to know its younger sibling. And in the meantime, some of the older siblings are also frequenting the area that, that the mother is in. And so these very um very interesting family associations develop or exist. And I and I found that extremely interesting. It's it's a byproduct of the ear notching. Um, system that we've put in place because it was initially put in place for census information. It was for us to know exactly how many animals we have and and yet after 25 years of, of studying this population we've managed to find out how intricate those relationships between individuals are simply because the sightings of an animal with a certain pattern is often seen with another animal. And how's the relationship? What's the history? So a lot more has come out of this than what we expected. It's incredibly interesting. I think two days ago, we managed to see a black rhino. And through what I had seen in the conservation room, I was photographing this black rhino. And as it sort of approached us, I think the last thing I was thinking about what number, what rhino I'm looking at. But it does give me a great opportunity to look at that rhino photograph now and go into the conservation room. And it might be able to give me a, a significant connection to what I'd seen and to what actually is taking place in the ground. You know, and it's also valuable because you start picking up 
um, you know, individuals' behavioral traits and things that are specific to a, to a, to a specific rhino. This, of course, you would pick up anyway if you were studying your rhino population closely. But our rhino populations are so large now that it's very difficult to track every animal's behavior without the, all that data coming in from the scouts because basically every time they see a rhino or any species of animal, they record it in their books. These books are brought into the office at the end of each month and the data is captured into our database. It's an access database. And from that, we can um, run reports that show us all sorts of things, we, not just where these animals have been, but who they've been with. You know, and we can we can look back through the history and we can track their their whole their whole lineage. There are so many key individuals who play an important part of safeguarding these landscapes, especially for the next generation. And they really become the ambassador of nature and the wilderness that we're in. Can you tell me a bit more about the conservation education program that Malangwe offers to the community? Sure, Ross. So uh, before I get into that, I just wanted to say how these conservation areas cannot operate as islands, these wildlife areas. They can't exist without the support and buy-in from the local communities. And um, if I have to think about how this has worked with Malalangwe, the most important thing I would say is that we employ our staff from the surrounding communities. We've got over 400 staff. So these are, these are all breadwinners whose, whose um, income then would extend out into the extended families and to the communities around us. We um, put money into clinics around us, schools. And one of the most exciting things for me is the school's program. We bring in grade six children and they spend about four days here from the surrounding communities. And the value for this is not just the education. You know, we go through the school biology course with them with PowerPoint presentations, practicals, experiments, and all that kind of stuff. They get to stay here. But the most important thing is giving them the, this, the experience of being in a wild environment, in a wild landscape, with the safety of the animals not being a threat at all to them or to their livestock or to their crops. For a lot of people living on the outskirts or on the edges of protected areas, there's always a, there's always the threat of animals um, from the park raiding their crops or killing their livestock. And so a lot of these children or a lot of these families have a negative perception of wildlife areas. And, you know, we want to give them an opportunity to be here without having to worry about that. So they can actually enjoy seeing a lion without worrying about what it's going to do to their stock. They can enjoy seeing an elephant without worrying about it raiding their maze. They can enjoy the most extraordinary scene that we see here in this part of the country of Quelia, making kaleidoscope patterns across the sky without it being, without having to think about what it's going to do to their crop. And that's what we want them to feel. That's what we want them to experience. Because if they see wild areas and wildlife as a threat, there's going to be no place for, for these areas or for these species in the future. So all the work that we that we do today won't have any long-lasting effect unless they value these areas. So those kids are going to be next generation's voters, next year's next next generation um, decision makers, and we need their buy-in. We need them to value these areas as we do. And I think you know communities and the broader reach beyond communities has a profound sort of feeling of emotion, as a number of people have gone through in the last couple of years as to how important these wilderness areas are and 
people understand the value of having wilderness being protected like it is right now. Yeah, Ross, I think that, you know, the way the world is going, we're moving away from the land. Many of our jobs are no longer land-based, say, as they were 100 years ago. There are less people working in fields with crops. There are less people working with with livestock. More people on computers, more people in cities. And it's very easy to forget about how important the natural world is for our survival. And I'm not just talking about our survival as far as clean air, being having enough bees or being able to get fresh fruit and vegetables and that kind of thing and fresh water. I'm talking about how important it is for our spirits and how, how what a healing effect nature has for the human race. And I think sometimes people need to be, in fact, often they need to be reminded of this. And immersing them in the natural environment gives them that opportunity. And if they see it and they feel it, they'll be absolutely convicted that it must have a place and that we must fight for these things. I completely agree. I mean, when you talk about people on computers and people on office spaces and, you know, they, they're looking for that wellness, that mm. that wholeness feeling. And maybe if I can ask you, I mean, I've been asked this many times because I live in the bush and you live in the bush. What is your wellness feeling? Where do you go? What do you do besides running around chasing rhinos? <laughs> So my my favorite thing is to walk in the bush. It's to be as close as possible as I can, to be um, literally in it and to be one with it and to try and understand as much as I can about it. Because I think the more that we can understand about it, the more we can care for it and the more we can make the right decisions. I think a lot of well-intending people make mistakes because literally we don't know enough about it. There's so much more to know. And, And you'd be surprised. You'd think people have been studying wildlife and nature for for decades, even centuries. But even for a huge species like a rhino, there is so much that's unknown and so much more that is imperative that we do understand if we want to do the best for these species and to give them the best chance of recovering. Yeah, I find when you talk about connecting and understanding the smaller aspects, there's an intricate part of being on foot Mm. and walking in an environment where a rhino's been or a leopard's been and you've seen a track, you've seen... Uh, scat left by a leopard you tend to have a closer connection to what that animal is but you also start to understand their movements and their natural movement throughout the bush but i think there's a very rewarding or joyous feeling when Mm. you do find those animals and you're out in safari vehicles it's a connection on both levels which i think is really important yeah it is and also walking on foot you add one with nature so you actually you're actually humbled by it you just one small part of it you're not dominating over it. You're not. You're, you're you're part of the system actually when you're walking. There are dangers that are that are present, so you need to be alert. And being alert makes you aware of everything, and it makes you notice things so much more. Absolutely. I mean, the, the word connection comes into so much of what we do. And I had a actually funny story about a guide who was a good friend of mine, and we, he had watched a rhino and a mud wallow to remove ticks and cool their bodies down. And after watching it, he turned to one of his guests and he said, would you like to jump in and have a wallow? And the guest literally said, yes, please. And he jumped down to his boxer shorts and they got into the mud. So both the guide and the guest lay in this very murky, muddy water. But he said it was the best experience he's ever had in his life. So connecting himself just to be in that environment and do that. It must have been one of the funniest things, but I can just imagine any vehicle driving around a corner and seeing that. Yeah, I can understand his wish to immerse himself in nature. You know, we, just at the end of our last rhino notching, 
There was one rhino that the scouts took a while to find, and we went up in the chopper. I know where it's general areas, and we looked around. And, you know, when you've got time to look down on this magnificent landscape, you really realize how much you love it. And I, I looked down, and I just thought, I just love this place so much. There's nothing nicer than that feeling of coming home or being at home. Yes. And I think for us, we're very fortunate that this is. Uh, but I know for a number of Singida guests, this has also become their second home in visiting it. Sarah, throughout your entire experience of being out here and, and interacting and, and viewing these wild animals, I'm sure that you've got a number of stories to tell. But if I could ask for one that's quite close to you in terms of your research, particularly on rhinos, do you have a story that is quite fascinating and quite unbelievable that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yes. Um, so Ross, this old cow, started to get into this phase where she's being bullied. And um, we would treat her. Now, we don't always treat, but we treat the cows because they're the, the factory for more babies. We leave the bulls because that's the natural process. We want actually to encourage um, survival of the fittest. But a young bull moved in with her, like her Ascari. And he went with her everywhere for the last five years of her life while she was being fought, treated, fought, treated. He never left her side. Now, you would normally think, this is a, because you can't see when they're adults that they're all kind of, to, to a, a novice's eye, they're all the same age. They're adults. They, they must be breeding pair. But it turns out that this was her grandson. Her grandson never left her side until she died. And when she died, one of the guides was fortunate enough to see vultures. He drove around the corner and he, he found her body. Her body was about 18 hours old. You know, it had been there a long time. She was still standing there fighting the hyenas and the vultures off her body. Wow. This was her, his grandmother. That is quite fascinating and quite unbelievable. Sarah, one of the questions that I did have for you is, in your line of work, what do you find most rewarding? So, Ross, certainly the growth of the populations over the time that I've been here has been extremely rewarding. But if I had to think of a single incident where my heart really was lifted, it, I have to say it was one of the first times I saw children from the community coming in and coming on a game drive, seeing a giraffe for the first time, seeing an elephant for the first time. You know, in words, I cannot describe what that did for me, to see the look on their faces, the absolute joy and amazement. And when I saw that, I was absolutely convinced that there is no question about it. We have to keep these areas for future generations. We have to be able to share these beautiful landscapes and these beautiful animals with children into the future. Sarah, now that you've explored so much avenues here, where do you see yourself in the next 10, 15 years? What's your goal? Where would you like to be? Um, so, Ross, I've just started a PhD project on the research that we've, on the information that we've collected on the rhinos after, over the last 25 years. And as I said to you, there's really, there are really exciting patterns that are emerging from that, from that data. And while I think of that, I just wanted to take the chance to encourage anybody who's been involved with dogged monitoring, um, collecting data, and feeling like they're not seeing any product. Because sometimes it's that hard work, years and years of hard work and seeing no pattern. And if you keep at it, it's like climbing a mountain. And when you get to the top, you'll look down on that view and it will be the greatest reward you can imagine to see the pattern emerging that can only be seen after years of hard and consistent work. And so I encourage anybody in that line of work to just keep going. The rewards will come. So my, my vision is to basically turn those patterns into something that's useful and 
valuable for conservation. Thank you so much, Sarah. Your work is not only fascinating, but so important. And what we do this decade to preserve biodiversity is critical. And the Malangwe Trust does so much more than what we had time to talk about. Yes, right. So we've got um, so many exciting projects. I'd love to share those with you another time. I look forward to the next episode. You can see more detail on the Singida website or Malangwe Trust website. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Singida podcast, Safari Conversations. Until next time. Thank you for listening. If you want to follow other episodes of our podcast series, Safari Conversations, please follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from or on our website at singida.com.